Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, February 12th, 2024. Valentine's Day hint to all of you guys still looking for a partner. They don't get the candy until they're in the van. On the show today, news, news, and more news. Then in our main segment, Jim finishes up the story of how we got illuminations. Let's get started by bringing in the man who sometimes uses big words he doesn't fully understand in an attempt to seem more photosynthesis. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> that is more true than you know, Len. I mean, you know, that, I, 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 though that said, I actually, as a kid, I was more tripped up by words that had, you know, uh, same spelling but different pronunciation. Like, you know, God forbid you you went into the local grocery store and asked for the Polish sausage as opposed to the Polish. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. It's one of the reasons why English is such a difficult language to learn, right? But I guess there are other languages like that. I mean, uh, Chinese, uh, you know, Mandarin has uh, words that uh, are spelled the same but pronounced differently based on context. So That strikes a little close to home. So moving on now. Moving on. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks to everyone who subscribes to the show over at patreon.com slash Media, including James Simpson, Captain Salty Hinder, Chris Heisel, Sam Ellis, John N., and Paul Stilling. Jim, these are the housekeeping staff that mysteriously disappeared one evening while working at a Casa Madrigal-themed test hotel room just behind Disney's Pop Century Resort. Their co-workers said they entered the room to get an idea of how long it would take to turn over and were never heard from again. And that if you pay close attention to the warm summer breezes at night, you can still hear the sounds of them singing. And maybe just a hint of margaritas being made. True story. Wow, I don't. I'm not saying they suffered, Jim. I'm not saying you know, they just, suffered. Uh, uh, but again, we don't talk about Bruno. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, on to the news. Folks, the news is sponsored by touringplans.com. Touring Plans helps you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right, a couple of uh, bits of quick news. Jim Disney just announced that 1900 Park Fair will reopen April 10th. This is one of the last remaining uh, closed restaurants that uh, that were open pre-pandemic. And Jim, characters will return to 1900 Park Fair. Uh, there will be a different lineup, though. So starting with Aladdin in his Prince Ali look, also Mirabelle and Tiana in her new look for Tiana's bio-adventure, along with Cinderella. Jim, I was, uh, I was on our Slack talking about this uh, earlier this morning, and one of the uh, one of the people on Slack pointed out that it sounds like the characters were based on who they had in-house who looked like these characters. <laughs> well, okay. Let me tell one quick story about uh, 1900 Park Fair. Because remember, when this, uh, you know, the, the Grand Flow opened, uh, they made a very big deal about having Mary Poppins in there in her, her jolly holiday outfit. Uh, and it turns out that outfit and sticky little fingers that have been, you know, eating waffles with maple syrup really didn't mix. You know, it just it, it became an issue, uh, you know, in-house there to the effect of how many of these outfits. And when I look at Aladdin as a Prince Ali outfit, Cinderella in her ball gown, Mirabelle, uh, you know, in, in, in her outfit and Tiana in the new outfit. It's like, oh, did nobody tell them about the previous dry cleaning bills? You know? <laughs> I was going to say, uh, Jim, if you happen to own a solvent that gets rid of maple syrup stains, you're about to be a very, very wealthy man. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, Jim, the big news this week, though, was really Disney's earnings call. Uh, and we're going to focus here mostly on the parks, but we'll bring in the other parts of Disney's businesses as they uh, as they come up and uh, as we provide context around 
how those other parts of the business affect the theme parks. All right. So one of the interesting things that Iger said yesterday was Walt Disney World attendance and hotel room occupancy dropped year over year for the previous quarter. Um, but that revenue was up 4% on higher costs, even with that lower attendance. So fewer people being charged more money sounds about right. Also, uh, all other Disney parks except Disneyland Paris, which is coming off of its 30th anniversary, had attendance increases. Okay, that is interesting. Yeah. And then uh, some uh, some background on this next thing that, uh, that Iger said. So just remember, six months ago in September, right before the start of Disney's fiscal 2024, uh, Bob Iger and Josh Tomorrow told investors that Disney was going to spend $60 billion on parks, experiences, and products over the next decade. Remember, uh, that includes Cruise and ABD as well, uh, and $17 billion specifically for Florida. And we said on the show the following week, which was September 25th, that uh, not adjusted for inflation, Disney spends around $3.2 billion a year on that stuff already. Adjusted for inflation, it's like $4 billion. So if you consider that uh, inflation is going to be 4% for the next decade, that $60 billion that Disney announced last year is worth about $50 billion, which is still a 25% increase in spending. Okay, fair enough. All right. Not to be pedantic here, Jim, but when Iger said we plan on spending $60 billion over the next 10 years yesterday, I was like, we're six months into that 10-year plan, dude. 5% mm. of that timeline is already gone. Like, get a move on here. And, and you know, again, I don't mean to be pedantic, but every year beyond that 10 years reduces the value of that $60 billion because of inflation. So it's something that has to be uh, considered. The other thing uh, that Iger said, did you note this? Um, basically, Disney's going to spend on stock buybacks this year what it spends on parks, experiences, and products annually. Well, okay. Given the outside situation, given the Nelson Pels and the Blackwell I, I guess I understand that, but jeez. And Edgar did say that, yeah, so $3 billion on buying back its own stock. I mean, he, he made a point of that. I think he actually spent more time talking about stock buybacks in ESPN than he did about the parks, which is kind of weird when you look at how much revenue each of those things, you know, generate, but whatever. All right. Iger did say that around 70% of that $60 billion is incremental capacity. And that's super helpful because I look at the words incremental capacity and hear new things, right? So 70% of $17 billion for Walt Disney World is right at $12 billion adjusted for inflation. It's around $13 billion or $1.3 billion per year. Uh, roughly two galaxies edge per year in Florida if you wanted to put a, uh, um, a picture to that, uh, to that number. Uh, I'm not sure, though, if Florida here refers to cruise line because if, if it does, that dramatically reduces the amount of money available to a park. Okay. Now, that's a, that's a great point. So Disney's got, what, three more cruise ships, two, two or three more cruise ships coming up, right? They've got uh, the Adventure, the Unnamed One, and, and the Global Dream, right? Um, and they've paid for, so the Adventure's paid for, right? That's, that's launching this fiscal year, so that's included. So then we've got the Global Dream, which will probably cost a billion dollars to fit out. And then one more, which is another billion dollars right there. So we'll say. Uh, another thing Iger said was that we've, quote, we've got a menu of things that will basically start opening in 2025 and there'll be a cadence every year of additional investment and increased capacity. Okay, so when Bob says 2025, I think he means fiscal 2025, which is September of 2024. And the good news there, and you had to wade through a lot of Bob Iger talk for this, but if you look at it, it looks like Jim Iger saying that 
by September of 2024, so by the end of this fiscal year, Disney will have finished paying $8 billion for the rest of Hulu, and Disney Plus will be profitable. So that's the point at which they switch to focusing on the parks and other things. And so we should expect then that we're right around the beginning of the ramp-up hiring spree that would go along with that. Does that make sense? It does. It does. But but doubling back to what we talked about on last week's show, and by the way, I want to clarify a point. We were talking about uh, Epic Universe and the two economy hotels there, and I mentioned that you know, there were rumors that, you know, you could book rooms out ahead. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And our buddy BioReconstruct reached out and said, not rumors, true. I want to say one hotel is taking reservations for January. The second one is taking reservations for February. And the inference is that that means that park will open in March of 2024. So for Disney, just as, you know, the, the fiscal year is coming to a close, okay, now we're going to pivot to doing things. <laughs> you know, it's the equivalent of, okay, the barn door has been open for years. The horse, you know, I, I we get, you know, change of dress cards from him now, all right? You know, the, the time to address the situation was years ago. Yeah, I think they got hamstrung by uh, by both of Hulu and the Disney Plus stuff. So streaming they basically they did. is going to uh, cause them a five year problem with uh, mm-hmm. with Epic Universe. Uh, by the way, uh, I I also think uh, Epic Universe will definitely be open by summer. I'll tell you offline about the one thing that I heard that I can't say on the show. Okay, okay, that points to that. So we'll see. Okay, all right. Also, a Disney announced that they're taking an equity stake in Epic Games. They announced a one point five billion dollar investment. Uh, Epic Games does a number of things, one of which is they make the Unreal Engine for video games, which Disney uses a lot, both for its own video games, but also in the parks. So things like Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run uses uh, the Unreal Engine for its graphics and stuff like that. Jim, what did you make of this? Uh, Len, I'm old. I'm a very old person. So I remember the yo-yo, you know, Disney aspect of gaming that, you know, we acquire an outside company, you know, to get serious of a game. Forget about that. We're taking gaming in-house. Hey, we, we acquire an outside company. Hey, we're taking it in-house. <laughs> we're we're like, laying everyone off. Hey, we acquired an outside company. Hey, we're bringing yeah. it in-house. Hey, we laid everyone off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. This, this dance step again. All right. I mean, but again, I, I think what makes it interesting is the very thing you just pointed out about the Unreal Engine and how it's used in the parks. And um, I, again, going to be interesting to see what that potentially does to Disney's rivals. You know, that, that yeah. you know, does this claw that off the table, uh, making it unavailable for other people to use? Well, that's the thing is, uh, since they have equity, they'll be able to see um, what projects Epic is working on. When oh, you yeah. own the company, you get to do that. So, yeah, that might be uh, that might be interesting for other companies who are looking to partner with Epic uh, or to use the Unreal Engine in a in a uh, non standard way. Yeah. And speaking of uh, future stuff coming at Walt Disney World, there was a uh, land use study that was uh, released last week, and I bring it up because it was almost certainly related to what we heard on Disney's earnings call around future development. So remember, Jim, uh, eighteen months ago at the D twenty three Parks panel in September of 2022, Disney released some concept art it called Beyond Big Thunder, detailing what might happen in a Magic Kingdom land expansion. And in the show notes, and I encourage everyone to go look at the show notes, I I put the concept art in there. And you can see that it's sort of in the lower left corner of that concept art is one of those rock spires from Big Thunder Mountain. So we know that this is north of that area in Frontierland. And as we said at the time, there's plenty of room available there for expansion. Jim, in the show notes, I've got a uh, Google Maps 
Uh, Ariel, look at that. All right. So our friend uh, Dan LB2000 over at WDWMagic.com was the first to notice that the latest Reedy Creek long-term land use study has changed the designation for some of this land up behind Frontierland in the Magic Kingdom. Back in 2020, a lot of this land was classified as, quote, unsuitable for development, right? But in the latest plan released last year, a lot of this land is now called either suitable or marginally suitable for development. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is this. um, The category marginally suitable didn't exist in the previous version of the land use plan. So someone not only had to invent that category specifically for this latest update, but they had to do it for a reason, right? What's the reason why you needed this new category of land, right? So the definition of marginally suitable is this. Uh, Wetlands that are within the 100-year flood elevation, development in these areas is permitted to the extent allowable under the long-term permits and require compensating storage to be provided. And here, storage means land, right? Um, And the reason they had to use it uh, to include using it for theme parks, as long as that use fits in within the rest of the long-term plan, right? So you can use it, but it's also got to fit in to the long-term use plan. So uh, below that, Jim, I actually uh, took the latest land use graph from the Reedy Creek uh, plan. And uh, Jim, here I, uh, I, I'm i expanding PDFs until it screams. So a lot of this gets a little <laughs> bit blurry because of how much I've had, to, uh, I've had to expand this. It looks like all of the available land inside the perimeter of Floridian Way, which is the road that sort of buffers the Magic Kingdom at the top, is about half the size of Main Street USA and Tomorrowland combined. Yeah, it's a good chunk, you know, uh, un- undoubtedly. And And what's interesting is Remember, what they had previously talked about was literally just building out a, a, a connection, if you will, starting at Big Thunder and eventually coming out next to uh, the Haunted Mansion uh, along the shore of, uh, what is it? Uh, the, Rivers the of America. Rivers of America. Yeah, and the, and the interesting thing there is uh, with the potential expansion, you could actually do a complete walk around from Big Thunder, maybe even over to Fantasyland, because I think some of the, the very, very back, back, back parts of Be Our Guest butt up against this potential expansion area. They do, they do. Now, I, I will tell you that, you know, what you're, you're suggesting here, you know, the challenge always is the utilidors in this park. Mm-hmm. You, know, that, yeah. you know, remember, you're building basically on the second floor, uh, you know, and right back there behind... It's a small world, you know, between uh, that point, you know, there, there's the entry point for the utilidors, there's, you know, a cast cafeteria, lots of stuff down there, but still yeah. doable, still doable. I think uh, offline, you and I had asked Jim Scholl um, a, a question about why the Tomorrowland Speedway still exists. And his point was, because if they touch that, they'd have to touch the utilidors and nobody wants to do that. So let's not, let's not uh, discount the amount of uh, uh, preservation that has to happen for the utilidors to function. The other interesting thing about this is, uh, remember before the pandemic, which seems like a lifetime ago, back in 2019, Disney bought 235 acres of land in the Magic Kingdom Resort area directly to the west of the Oak Trail and Magnolia Golf Courses right? And that land is now in the updated land use plan, but it's set aside for, quote, conservation. I I think you've nailed, you know, what's going on here. If you think about how they've introduced 
the uh, marginally uh, available land, I, I, you know, marginally I, unsuitable, yeah, or marginally margin- unsuitable, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, face it, they have to horse trade. You know, they're yeah. they're, they're going to have to if they're going to make use of that turf. Uh, they're going to have to horse trade that. Okay, we're going to use this land, but we have set aside this area as a make good for conservation. So uh, yeah. this, this is an interesting chess move. Well, the other thing that I noticed in the land use plan, and again, reading this thread on WW Magic, was there were some other interesting areas of Walt Disney World that also moved from unsuitable to marginally unsuitable. And that might give us a hint about future development. One of them is uh, the area around Fort Wilderness and Wilderness Lodge, which went from unsuitable to marginally unsuitable. Oh. The most popular resorts in Walt Disney World have to be the Magic Kingdom area resorts, right? Oh, no doubt. This gives you more land to build them on. Holy cow. I mean, lots and lots and lots of land. Wow. And that's valuable because remember that butts up against the Four Seasons, which is, uh, you know, very, very valuable real estate. Yeah. And also Golden Oak, right? Forgive me for doing this, but but, I mean, uh, reflections, uh, you know, the property that I mean, we saw the concept art. They cleared the site. Uh, it's still sitting there behind construction fences. And, uh, you know, and what's fascinating to me is that didn't go forward. But on the other hand, when you look at changing all of this land from unsuitable to marginally unsuitable, um, I mean, obviously we're talking a decades of, of development, but wow, this much real estate. Holy cow. Maybe you and I have heard, though, that and we, and we heard from someone who who reached out like last year and said this thing isn't dead, right? Uh, so, I mean, it, I don't love the name. I didn't love the concept, but I think it's almost irresistible for Disney to not to put something on on that particular piece of land, especially if it fits in with the Fort Wilderness Wilderness Lodge you know, theming. And just look at how they've subdivided all of the different offerings within what we used to call Wilderness Lodge, right? I mean, they've got basically three separate resorts right now. And that, that tells you that not only is there demand, but that Disney wants to be able to cut up that demand to maximize the amount of money it gets on it. So, Oh, absolutely. And let's not forget earlier this year, we saw all of that work being done on the cabins. I mean, you yeah. know, this is, this yeah. is a part of property that, that Disney is investing in and has plans for the future with it. And geez, this proves it. Holy cow. Yeah, so I'm super excited about that. A couple of other interesting things from the uh, updated land use. A ton of changes around Hollywood Studios. So the area between the park proper and then Victory Way uh, is no longer part of a conservation easement. And so the land use designation has gone from unsuitable to marginally unsuitable, which gives them an expansion pad for the studios. And we've said, you and I said on a, on a previous show, that the most likely candidates for expansion in the parks are the Magic Kingdom and Hollywood Studios, right? Not Animal Kingdom. The very aspect of, you know, live animals. And and you have to prevent them from getting at the tourists because, you know, people can't open their wallets and buy toys if the tiger is eating their face. Yeah. But, yeah, wow. Okay. This is interesting. Yeah. So uh, so they're making some moves there. I mean, obviously, there's a ton of stuff that they would have to, uh, uh, to get through the uh, Central Florida Tourism Oversight Board which is unlikely in any scenario, but uh, this is the first step, right? This is the first step. That it is. That it is. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us how the Epcot show we knew and loved, Illuminations, finally came to be. We'll be right back. 
Hey, if I asked you right now how many subscriptions you have, do you think you'd actually be able to list them all? More importantly, how much you were paying monthly for each of these subscriptions? If you asked me that question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have told you, of course. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I honestly couldn't believe how many subscriptions Nancy and I had. More to the point, how much money on a monthly basis we were wasting on these things. That's why I am so, so glad I started using Rocket Money a few years back to help me keep track of all of our subscriptions. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. And what I really love about this personal finance app is Rocket Money allows me to view all of our subscriptions on one screen. And if I see something there that I don't want, I could just cancel it with a single tab. I, I never have to get on the phone with customer service. Look, Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash dish. That's rocketmoney.com slash dish. One more time, in honor of 2024 being a leap year, which means we get one more day in February. rocketmoney.com slash dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. And Jim, we left off last week with guests being super impressed with the perimeter fireworks around World Showcase Lagoon and Disney asking its nighttime entertainment team to mm -hmm. come up with a new show for World Showcase. Yep. Yep. And I remember, you know, that, that they had been sort of handcuffed by an incremental approach to, uh, you know, the budget, which, again, was tied to what was going on back in 84 with green mailers and that sort of thing. So, all right, long story short, Le Carnival de Lumiere, a, a new world fantasy and laser phonic uh, fantasy, um, they walked so illuminations could run. You know, all of those earlier nighttime spectaculars staged out on World Showcase Lagoon after Epcot Center first opened in 82, were basically necessary missteps. The only way to find out what, you know, how to do a truly memorable show out on this 38-acre lagoon was to make a, a, a number of middling shows first. And so um, you got to give Don Dorsey and Adam Bizark, you know, credit here. They were the creative directors, more importantly, the show directors of both a New World Fantasy and Laser Phonic Fantasy. And, and, Don and Adam were quick to recognize both the strengths and the shortcomings of those earlier Lagoon shows. I mean, take, for example, the classic music-based score. If you like classical music, this is basically a smorgasbord of songs. You've got super familiar stuff like it opens with Beethoven's Fifth, which who doesn't know that, right? Mm -hmm. But then you've also got... Uh, uh, Beethoven's Ninth, the Chorale, the Ode to Joy. You've got a bunch of stuff from Bach. You've got the Italian Concerto, right? You've got Offenbach. You've got a 
Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Five, which is an, an, not not my favorite, but okay. But it really was. It was basically a tour of world classical music. And by the way, I think Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Two would be the thing to do there. But whatever, go with five. Go with five. Anyway, yeah. So classical music, bunch of nerds. Go ahead. Yeah, but but that was the thing. That was a conscious choice because Epcot was going to be Disney World's a theme park for adults. It did have the eighteen twelve overture and anything that involves canon in classical music, Jim. <laughs> Yes. But again, to create some connective tissue, uh, some commonality between the, the Main Street Electrical Parade over at the Magic Kingdom and the Electrical Water Pageant out in Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake, um, a decision was made to perform that show's score on a synthesizer. So all three of Walt Disney World's nighttime shows had, had a similar electronic sound. But oh, right. Yeah. Okay, as Illuminations was being developed, though, Dorsey and Bezark decided it was time for Epcot's nighttime spectacular to become its own animal. Uh, more to the point that guests standing around the perimeter of a World Showcase Lagoon needed to hear a richer, warmer sound. Which is why, for Illuminations, they ditched a synthesizer and opted to go with an actual orchestra this time around. So they, they booked time with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Now, the score for Illumination recycles a lot of music from a New World Fantasy and Laserphonic Fantasy, as Len mentioned. Beethoven's Fifth, we also have things like Flight of the Bumblebee and William Tell Overture. Only now, instead of having those classical pieces pushed out through a Moog, these pieces, uh, arranged by Dorsey, uh, Steve Skorjika, and Bruce Healy, who, by the way, did the music for Fantasmic, uh, they're now being performed by a 93-piece orchestra. Nice. So you now have a richer, fuller, warmer, bigger sound, uh, which backs up an overall bigger show. And again, as you mentioned at the top of the show, the, what people had really responded to with Laserphonic Fantasy were those moments where they were surrounded by spectacle. So Dorsey and Bizarre really lean into the, this idea with the show. In fact, as Dorsey explains in an interview that he did about the yet-to-open Illuminations back in January of 88, the evolution of this show from laser phonics to illumination was to add lighting effects to the pavilions for the first time, bringing them into the show and expanding the overall scope of the show. Now, where this gets interesting is now remember how when Walt Disney World's entertainment team was first developing a nighttime show for Epcot Center. Uh, one that would be presented out on World Showcase Lagoon, they originally turned to the electrical water pageant for inspiration. So now they revisit this idea, but in kind of a weird way. Now, on previous Disney dishes, we've talked about the electrical water pageant, how when you're looking out over, say, Seven Seas Lagoon or Bay Lake, and you, you see the octopuses waving their tentacles or dinosaurs eating swamp grass or American flags waving, what you're really looking at are old-fashioned Christmas lights strung up in 14... 40-foot-long boats, uh, and the lights themselves are on these rectangular frames that sit upright on the boats on material that, well, look, it's not as heavy as chain link, but it's a little bit sturdier than chicken wire. Jim, uh, some people say that if you look closely where that chicken wire uh, is, you can still see some of the skin from the <laughs> interns who put it together. <laughs> <laughs> definitely see that happening it does look kind of lethal all right so okay is that, we now is that rust no that's blood just just leave it just, just keep going okay you got clothes now, on it's fine all right so 
the Walt Disney World Entertainment Team is looking to do more with the rooftops of the individual pavilions around World Showcase Lagoon, with the exception, by the way, of the Morocco Pavilion. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, is this is this how the Morocco uh, exception came to be? This is the story? Well, yeah. All now, right. The, wait, hold on. Hold on. Let me get settled in my chair. Okay. Go okay. ahead. Go well, ahead. it turns out the tallest structure in this World Showcase Pavilion is a recreation of the Kutubaya Minaret in Marrakesh which is a prayer tower in this 12th century mosque. And Disney's entertainment team, when they learned this, they're like, wow, if we string that thing with Christmas lights, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know that's, yeah. that, that yeah. might be perceived as a, a little bit disrespectful. Maybe not the seriousness which with we, we need to treat this particular subject matter. Okay, go ahead. So that's it. Out of an abundance of respect and caution, the entire Morocco Pavilion was deliberately left in the dark during this original iteration of Illumination. Ah, so that's why. Okay, all right. Now, back to the rooftops of all of the other World Showcase Pavilions. See, again, over the four-year run of Lazeronic Fantasy, they, they had all been outlined with twinkle lights again, with the exception of Morocco. And now, uh, Walt Disney World's entertainment team wants to bring, you know, these World Showcase pavilions more into this nighttime show. You're going to talk about blow-up dolls, aren't you? Or blow-up inflatables, aren't you? You you are. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's the first thing I thought of, and then I thought, oh my God, that's a terrible idea, which means that someone in Disney has to have considered it, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, but but no, this is the thing. They, long story short... It was a battle between <laughs> entertainment and Imagineering. And the Imagineers just did not want structures up on these rooftops that did change the overall look of World Showcase Pavilion. And, and toward, toward that end, Len's talking about the, the infamous surprise in the skies, the, the daytime show at Epcot Center that, that ran from September of 91 through September of the following year, 92. And this did what, you know, the people who were operating the parks wanted it made them come to epcot early stand around world showcase lagoon and and order food from quick service and that sort of thing as they waited for the show to happen in uh, two or three o'clock in the afternoon and basically it filled the skies over world showcase lagoon and we're talking paraplanes that were flown by mickey minnie goofy pluto winnie the pooh tigger and chippendale there was colored smoke there was daytime fireworks not only colored smoke, but like neon colored smoke, because this was the 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the lots of, of hot colors. And a lot of it made with red dye number two, Len. You know, so uh, gonna... you know what? Wait, it, it, sacrifices had to be made, Jim. It's fine. <laughs> I, I Thank you for so. your service. Yeah. But 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 what Len is referring to is that this show closed out daily with giant cold air inflatables of of these same Disney characters slowly rising up next to and and in some cases on top of uh, various World Showcase pavilions. We, we had Mickey at the American Adventure, Minnie was Japan, Goofy was over by Norway, Pluto was in France, uh, Winnie the Pooh was Canada, uh, Tigger was Morocco, Chippendale were China, and then there were four additional cold inflatables uh, characters that hadn't flown over the park. We had Donald in Mexico, Daisy in Germany, Pinocchio in, in Italy, and all the way over in the UK, we had Robin Hood. And the Imagers, they hated 
this show, uh, you know, <laughs> just flat out because, it's, you know, for 23 hours and 55 minutes a day, there were these giant boxes just sitting there that, you know, would be fired up at the very end of Surprise in the Skies. And then they'd stay inflated for like, you know, five, 10 minutes, and then they deflate them and, and put them away. Jim, so what I'm hearing is that back in the 90s, Imagineers objected to a bunch of unsightly stuff sitting around World Showcase for 23 hours and 55 minutes only to be, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm assuming all that when, that none of these Imagineers were around for Harmonious because it was literally <laughs> the exact same conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you would wonder, you think, but this is an example of where like institutional knowledge clearly must have left the company between these two events because either no one was there when Harmonious barges were brought up to say, you know, we tried this 20 years ago and it sucked. Or or management was like, I don't care what happened 20 years ago. The pile of money that we, we make now is so much bigger, I could care less. One or the other, right? Well, it's worth noting, you mentioned institutional memory. Remember, you know, when Epcot, you know, imagine it was up to 2,000 employees. Yeah. At the heyday. You yeah. know, and when Epcot, you know, was completed and the work was largely done on Tokyo Disney, Imaginary shrunk down to 300 people. Yeah. And so a lot of that institutional memory did, in fact, walk out the door. Anyway, back to Illuminations now. Dorsey and Bees are, are, are wanted the individual pavilions around World Showcase to really come to life as part of this nighttime show. Uh, like, for example, to suddenly have the windmill at the entrance of the Moulin Rouge appear mm. out of the darkness on the top of the France Pavilion with the, its blade spinning. But now the problem was, how do you have that moment in Illuminations actually remain a surprise until it actually happens in the nighttime show? And, and you know, and again, Remember, you want to surround people with spectacle. So the answer in the end was simple. You just take one of those big, flat rectangles of chicken wire and Christmas lights that are featured in the electrical water pageant, but instead of stringing them up between two poles, you put them on a hinge on a rooftop. Oh, okay. That way, this piece of lighting equipment for the bulk of the day is just lying flat on that rooftop of that respective World Showcase pavilion, hiding in plain sight. And then after dark, techs go up onto yep. that rooftop, take that same piece of lighting equipment, uh, they lift it up and lock it into place. So it's then ready to shine its respective show moment and illumination. And, and there were a bunch of these screens that were created. You know, one flew over the China Pavilion where you saw a dragon flying in the sky. Likewise, Japanese Pavilion, there were kites being blown by the breeze. There were also early use of projection mapping. But if we're being honest here, Len, what this really was was slide projectors with carefully edited slides turned on buildings. So, for example, uh, the German pavilion that's how it became a gingerbread house you know in the middle of the show and how canada suddenly became uh, the, the the canada pavilion suddenly became the canadian rockies the thing that impresses me here is this like it, okay it, you know chicken wire and christmas lights don't sound like it's super complicated but the thing that impressed me or the thing that i immediately went to was okay so you've got this chicken wire you've got this electrical equipment it's sitting flat on a roof in florida in the summer, where it's going to get, I mean, it could easily, I mean, I'm guessing that roof can hit 200 degrees Fahrenheit, which, yeah, which is, you know, not, not generally the operating environment of Christmas lights, I'm just saying. 
Well, what was interesting that, that, that got told to me is around dusk, the text would start to go up on the rooftop. And the very thing that you're asking about, you know, they had to make a check to make sure that all the bulbs were lit. They would, you know, stand on the rooftop and effectively turn that piece of lighting equipment on while it was still flat on the rooftop. And what was so funny is you could tell when they were doing it, because suddenly you'd be walking by a pavilion and then it's like, you know, suddenly you'd see the, the, the brightly lit outline of three or four people dressed in black stepping on a, on a rooftop in France. And it's like, <laughs> lit, lit from below? <laughs> lit from below. And it's like, what the hell is that? And they click. Yeah, you know. I click. imagine, like, you know, when it starts getting dark early, like around, you know, four or five o'clock, if they start doing it then, you'd be like, yeah, it's an interesting effect you guys got going on there. Some of the, this stuff is just fascinating, man. All right, go oh, ahead. Oh, no, 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 absolutely. And it was especially when you factor in how low ticket was back in the day. Now, again, not going to lie to you, Len, took a lot of money to transform Laserphonic Fantasy into Illuminations, which is why Disney ropes in General Electric, which is already sponsoring Epcot's Horizons Pavilion to be the sponsor of Illuminations. And by the way, Len, if you bought a GE bulb back in 1988, chances are the exterior of the packaging for that light bulb read GE presents Illuminations, the world's greatest light show at Walt Disney World Epcot Center. Ah, oh, you can't. Oh. You can't buy that kind of publicity. I mean, I guess you can, but still, that's kind of There great. we go. There we go. So it's the most complex show that Walt Disney World Entertainment has presented to date. And by the way, Len, wasn't ready for primetime in January of 1998. Now, now, Michael Eisner himself tells this story about the night of Illumination's premiere. He figures, ooh, you know, I'm going for a twofer. I'm going to, we're going to set up the party over at the Norway Pavilion. I and mean, we've, we've finished the exteriors and we'll put out little tables and we'll feed them Norway food. I mean, mind you, the Norway Pavilion wouldn't open till uh, three months later, uh, uh, May 3rd, 1988. But, you know, Eisner's, ooh, I'm, I want to show off my new stuff. And so now it's time to for uh, Illuminations to begin. So everybody gathers down by the water and gets between the sound poles. <laughs> my, my, for, the, the first thing I'm thinking here is the bathrooms don't work, but go ahead. <laughs> Wow, you know, the, the, I think the bathrooms work, but they had not wired up the sound speakers. <laughs> there it is. The speakers don't work. All right, all okay. right. So, so Eisner's right. there with all of the GE executives who paid millions there to sponsor this thing, right. and they're hearing music from you know Canada. <laughs> you know, and, and, and right. just That's fine. And, and, and Michael's like, well, you know, the bar's open. Let's go back <laughs> over here. You know, but it all works out in the end. You know, people standing in areas and showcase where they could actually hear the music are wowed by illuminations combination of sight sound and 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 the spectacle that surrounds them and and so which is why illuminations with its 783 firework shells it's five miles of of edge lighting which outlines every rooftop with the exception of morocco 108 uh nozzles out of world showcase lagoon which are shooting fountains 90 feet in the air it becomes the gold standard for all nighttime shows for epcot center that follow i mean it's the gold standard for for disney nighttime entertainment the illuminations is where it's at and not to, to belabor the obvious but ge did get its money's worth i mean as you were exiting the park for the night first of all you saw the ge logo project on Spaceship Earth, those lasers back in the, the, the top cupola of the American Adventure Pavilion, while a musical track that toggled back and forth between Disney's is a small world and the GE theme, we bring good things to life, is playing. And, of course, the success of the show leads to the holiday version of Illuminations.
illuminations. Oh, the best fireworks show I've ever seen in person. There we go. Uh, in 1994, likewise, Illuminations 25 and Illuminations Reflections of Earth. Fun fact, though, Len, Disney didn't actually own the rights to the name Illuminations. You know, this is interesting because I was going to bring this up. When I was um, in Blackpool in England, they have a nighttime celebration called Illuminations as well. And I was wondering, like, one of two things is happening. Either Disney had to pay someone to license the name, or they had to convince a court that the name is so generic and used everywhere for, you know, nighttime lighting things, that it's basically like uh, a brand name that became common, like aspirin. As I understand it, it was the former, that they had to cut a check and they got the name, they liked it. And by the way, this is also what happened with Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith. Uh, prior to that theme ride, uh, you know, that throw ride opening at MGM in July of 99, Disney had to first pay for the rights to use that name uh, to get him away from a now defunct amusement park. But Jim Shule, who helped yep. design a Rock and Roller Coaster with Aerosmith, shares that story in an upcoming episode of our video series, Disney Unpacked. So uh, please go check that stuff over on Patreon. Anyway, that is the story of how Illuminations came to be. Uh, now, I still haven't managed to see luminous the symphony of us in person um i'm going tonight oh okay so i I, i'm gonna want you know an update line because it's been running since december 5th it has more than two months of nightly performances under its belt at this point and you once famously described this nighttime show as the interim boyfriend of walt disney world entertainment so (laughs) it's 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 the rebound boyfriend yes the rebound boyfriend there we go that's you know i i was with some friends last month in january and we were we were walking out of takumite which has a new nighttime uh, bar experience which we should talk about um, anyway, I, I caught the uh, caught a few minutes of the uh, the show from the Japan Pavilion. It's if you had to say like it's fine, and 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 say it like you meant it, like it really is just absolutely acceptable, and maybe that's it. Uh, that's that's still where I would put it. It's I I love being in Epcot for um, for nighttime fireworks. I love the fact that the barges are gone. Is this my favorite show of all time? You know, no. Do I appreciate the fact that everyone else appreciates it and they're sticking around in Epcot and they're eating in the restaurants and that's ultimately going to be good for the parks? Yeah, that's what I'm getting out of this. It's a bridge to something else. That's a good add to it. But again, I'd love to hear, you know, uh, when you see the show you know, over the next couple of days, you know, how it stands up for repeat viewing. You got to come down and, uh, when you, and see the show and then we'll uh, I'll take you to the uh, Takumite, to the nighttime thing. It's Sounds pretty good. like a plan. Okay. Awesome. Cool. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show by subscribing over at patreon.com slash jimhellmedia, where we're posting exclusive shows every week. This week's new video is on Toontown and how it came out of Mickey's birthday land with our friend Jim Scholl. Check it out at patreon.com slash jimhellmedia. On next week's show, how do you completely redo an attraction that sits in the middle of a running theme park? We bring in Imagineer Jim Scholl to tell some stories. And you can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced spectacularly by Eric Hersey, who'll be singing Veggie Veggie Fruit Fruit with Dr. Mohammed Khan at the 2024 International Sugar Beet Institute Show this coming March 13th and 14th at the Alaris Center, that's just off US 29, in beautiful downtown Grand Forks, North Dakota. While Eric's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.